Hi, my name's Graham Abbott. Welcome to Classics Unlocked, a program brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. In the world of classical music, most of the composers whose work we remember today, and most of those we don't, wrote a large body of work. But Gustav Mahler, one of the best-known composers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, wrote comparatively little in terms of numbers of works. Apart from over 30 songs, there are really only 14 completed works in his catalogue, an early piece of chamber music, an early cantata, two orchestral song cycles, and tend symphonies. This might initially strike us as odd. The fact is, Mahler's work as a composer was a relatively small part of his life. He was one of the most famous conductors of his time, in particular as a conductor of opera. But because compositions last longer than unrecorded performances, it's those we remember now. From his first professional conducting job in 1880, when he was 20, until his death at the age of only 50, he worked incredibly hard as a conductor. But in his summer breaks, he composed. Of course, Mahler's symphonies are unlike those of any other composer, written on a gigantic scale with a breathtaking vision of life, death and the world. In this program, I want to survey these symphonies to provide a few signposts for your further exploration of this unique corner of the repertoire. All the recorded examples will come from legendary recordings featuring the Royal Kanzelkabau Orchestra, conducted by Bernhard Heitink. It was while he was working in Leipzig in the late 1880s that Mahler made his first settings of poems from the anthology known as Des Knaben Wunderhorn, The Boy's Magic Horn. This was a collection of over 700 German folk song texts, which had been published early in the 19th century, and Mahler was intoxicated by it. It was also while he was in Leipzig that Mahler wrote the first draft of his first symphony, as well as a tone poem that later became the first movement of the second. Neither was performed at the time, but it shows that he was thinking on a massive scale. Even at this stage, Mahler seemed aware that, to quote Alex Ross, his project was to do for the symphony what Wagner had done for the opera. He would trump everything that had gone before. Mahler's first symphony was premiered in Budapest in late 1889, and it was a shock to the musical world. The work he created between 1884 and 1888 was a gigantic tone poem rather than a symphony, and it had five movements. But Mahler gave his audience no descriptive program to help them decipher what the music might mean. For the second and third performances in the mid-1890s, the revisions to the work included a title, Titan, making reference to an early 19th century novel by Jean-Paul. Mahler also gave the movements titles, and the reception to the work was much more positive. It was at a performance in Berlin in 1896, though, that the work was first called a symphony, and the titles, including Titan, were removed. More importantly, the second of the work's five movements, called Blumine, was also removed in 1896, leaving a more traditionally structured four-movement symphony. Only one programmatic title was left. The third movement was called a funeral march. But not even this was included when the first symphony was published in 1899. 
Nothing like the first symphony had ever been written before. Yet as soon as it was finished, and before it was even performed, Mahler started work on a huge orchestral funeral march. He later called it Totenfeier, funeral rites, and there seems to be no doubt that the hero who was the subject of the first symphony is here mourned and laid to rest in the new movement. Yet this new music wasn't a standalone tone poem. Right from the start, Mahler intended this funeral march to be the first movement of a new symphony. The question was, what would follow it? He'd reached a crisis as to how to proceed. The dramatic thrust of the first symphony and the first movement of the second came to a standstill for five years, a creative break unique in Mahler's composing life. He found his way forward in part by espousing an approach to music he later claimed to despise, namely program music, music which specifically tells a story or seeks to describe things in sound, like places or events or emotions. In order to find a way forward from this funeral procession, Mahler devised in his mind a story which would give him the ideas on which he could hang his music for the subsequent movements. In no other of his works did Mahler create a program like this. The middle three movements in Mahler's program for the symphony, according to the musicologist Donald Mitchell, are memories, fleeting reminiscences of the hero's life before all is rendered void after his death. The second movement describes a happy moment from the hero's life, but one that included a sad recollection of his youth and lost innocence. For the third movement, Mahler wrote, You must imagine that to one who has lost his identity and true happiness, the world looks like this, distorted and crazy, as if reflected in a concave mirror. This is the emotional low point for the memories of the dead hero, and as his musical inspiration, Mahler drew on his setting of one of the poems from Des Knaben Wunderhorn, known in English as St. Anthony's Sermon to the Fish.
For the fourth movement, Mahler draws on another of his Wunderhorn songs. Urlicht, or Primeval Light, tells a simple story. I came upon a broad highway, an angel appeared and tried to send me back, but I will not be sent away. I am from God and will return to God. God will guide me to eternal bliss. Mahler here introduces, for the first time in one of his symphonies, a human voice to sing the words. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Having written the first movement, a funeral procession, then taken five years to discover the program for the middle three movements, memories and glimpses of the life past and a hint of life to come, he still had no clear idea of how to end. A fifth movement was required. The idea came in 1894 when he attended the funeral of the conductor Hans von Bülow, at which Friedrich Klopstock's ode, Die Auferstehung, The Resurrection, had been read. And this gave Mahler his missing link. But the end of the Second Symphony is much more than a simple rosy vision of an eternal happily ever after. There is no judgment, no damnation, no salvation even, just new life. It's a vision which is as simple as it is undogmatic. The nature of that new life is not spelled out, except that Mahler's vision has a God and that all people will return to him. completed his second symphony, known as the Resurrection Symphony, in 1894, and it had its first complete performance in Berlin in December 1895. 
Then, in 1896, he topped off the gigantic second with the even more gigantic third. Mahler's third is a cosmic vision, which makes up the longest regularly performed symphony in the repertoire. It covers an entire world, maybe even an entire universe of emotional states. The third symphony couldn't go forward from the journey traversed by the first two, so it seeks to go back to the primal stirrings of the universe. It attempts to describe the world in all its natural and emotional glory. Mahler took about three years to write it, completing this vast score in 1896. The following year, three of the work's six movements were performed in Berlin, conducted by Felix Weingartner. It wasn't until 1902 that the complete work, which takes more than an hour and a half, was performed. On that occasion, Mahler himself was the conductor. This vast creation is painted on the canvas of a huge orchestra with the addition of a women's choir, a boys' choir and a solo alto. The first three movements stand quite separately from one another and their titles indicate the symphony's journey. The first movement is Pan Awakes, Summer Marches In. The second is What the Flowers in the Meadow Tell Me and the third What the Animals in the Forest Tell Me. Moving up the orders of nature, from the rocks to the flowers to the animals, the symphony's fourth movement was given the title, What Mankind Tells Me. Appropriately, it's at this point Mahler introduces the human voice, an alto solo. This beautiful slow movement sets a text from Nietzsche's Also sprach Zarathustra, which begins, O man, take heed, what says the deep midnight? I slept, I slept. From a deep dream have I awoken. The fifth movement of Mahler's third is What the Angels Tell Me, after which we have What Love Tells Me, the first of Mahler's great, gigantic, slow finales. It prefigures the slow endings of two later masterpieces, The Song of the Earth and The Ninth Symphony, and it clearly aims to express what human voices and words cannot express. 
Unlike Beethoven's Ninth, where human voices are added in the finale to express what mere instruments cannot, Mahler's Third moves beyond human poetry and song to express love, as Berlioz did in Romeo and Juliet, as being beyond words. Only music alone can do it justice, so the voices are silent in the finale. By the time the Third Symphony had been performed in 1902, though, the Fourth Symphony, composed between 1899 and 1901, had already been premiered in Munich. In the Fourth, Mahler pulls back his symphonic vision and writes a much more conventional work in terms of scale. The orchestra is, for Mahler, rather small, and the mood is elegant on the one hand and rather cheeky on the other. The first four Mahler symphonies are often referred to as the Wunderhorn symphonies because all four make use, to some extent, of songs Mahler had written setting texts from Des Knaben Wunderhorn. And many commentators point out that from the fifth symphony onwards, Mahler made much more use of complex polyphonic textures, setting them apart from the four earlier works. The fourth symphony does indeed make use of one of Mahler's Wunderhorn songs, but it's often overlooked that the fourth also contains some very complex polyphonic passages, thus presaging the later symphonies in this respect. But the main reason the fourth is deceptive is that it's often labelled as being simpler, more chamber-like, more classical, even neoclassical, with the implication being that the fourth is easier to understand than Mahler's other symphonies. Externally, Mahler's fourth seems to be all these things. But the fourth is no mere interlude in Mahler's creative journey. Under the surface lurks an almost perverse sense of turning the universe on its head. There are complex thematic references between the movements, and the fourth symphony is given more importance in the Mahler canon by virtue of the fact that elements of the mighty fifth symphony a hint of the fifth opening fanfare, the use of complex polyphony, the elevation to solo status of the first horn, can also be easily discerned in it. The Fifth Symphony occupied Mahler in 1901 and 1902 and was premiered in Cologne in 1905. For the first time since the First Symphony, Mahler created a symphony which was purely instrumental and didn't require vocal forces. 
Like the second symphony, the fifth charts a course from the depths of despair to the heights of exhilaration, from darkness to light. But here the focus isn't on death and the afterlife with God, but a more temporal journey inspired, at least in part, by love. Mahler's fifth does seem to mark the beginning of a new direction for the composer. The fifth, sixth and seventh symphonies are purely instrumental works. No singers are required. There are also no overt references to the poems from Desknab and Wunderhorn, and the fifth, sixth and seventh have little in the way of program or literary inspiration. There's no narrative as such. There can be little doubt, though, that one of the reasons Mahler's fifth charts an upward trajectory emotionally is due to the fact that it expresses not only the positive state of his professional life, but also the fact that by the summer of 1902, when he completed the symphony, he had found love. Mahler met Alma Schindler in late 1901, and by the time he was working on the symphony in the summer of 1902, they were married, with Alma pregnant with their first child. Shadows would fall over the relationship, and soon, but at the time of writing the Fifth Symphony, Mahler was deeply happy on many levels. Alma lived a great deal longer than Mahler. She went on to marry two other famous artistic figures after Mahler's death in 1911, the architect Walter Gropius and the writer Franz Werfel, and she lived until 1964. Her published reminiscences of Mahler are regarded by some as not entirely trustworthy, but it does seem that the fourth movement of the Fifth Symphony was composed as an expression of Mahler's love for this extraordinary woman. This movement, called Adagietto, is probably the best-known and most famous piece of Mahler there is. This is mainly due to its use in contexts apart from the rest of the symphony, especially as a recurring musical idea in Lucchino Visconti's 1971 film Death in Venice, starring Dirk Bogard. It was also famously conducted by Leonard Bernstein at the funeral of Senator Robert Kennedy in New York in 1968. Sadly, the associations with death and mourning, completely foreign to its origin as an expression of love, have led to this music being played at a tempo which is much slower than the composer intended. The slowest recorded performance of this movement is around 14 minutes. Mahler is known to have conducted it in seven. While there will always be some variation in approach to this music, the recording used here lies midway between these two extremes at ten and a half minutes, it's probably true that some reassessment of what it's all about is needed with music as famous as this, lest it become atrophied and meaningless.
Mahler's Sixth Symphony was completed in 1906. It's sometimes given the title of tragic, but there is a great debate as to what extent Mahler might have authorised this. It certainly wasn't used at the premiere or when the piece was published. It's a huge work, lasting about 80 minutes, for a very large orchestra. Problematic also is the question of the order of the middle two movements, a subject on which Mahler left contradictory instructions. Conductors today will usually decide for themselves based on their reading of the evidence and of their view of the music's trajectory. What is beyond doubt is that Mahler's sixth is overwhelmingly powerful in performance, and the sheer power and dramatic sweep of the music demands attention. It also contains one more unanswered question relating to the massive hammer blows in the finale. There were originally three, but Mahler later removed the third, leaving silence in its place. What these blows actually mean is much discussed, as is the question of whether or not to restore the third one. Some conductors do, others don't. Either way, the experience of the music is shattering. The Seventh Symphony was composed immediately after the Sixth in 1904 and 1905. It's aroused all sorts of contradictory opinions over the century since its premiere in Prague in 1908. Some see it as a dark night of the soul, others as a bleak existential joke. For many commentators, the seventh is the problem child in the Mahler canon. There's no clear narrative, no clear sense of progression, and no obvious sense of cohesion. It challenges, it puzzles, and it raises more questions than it answers. But it's still amazing. Mahler started in 1904 by writing two movements he called Nachtmusik. This word, which literally means night music, had been around for centuries. In Mozart's day, it meant a serenade. 
But there's a more literal night evoked in this music, suggesting birds and animals in darkness, and more subconsciously, fears and ghostly apparitions. In 1905, Mahler returned to these movements and tried to work out a context for them. Herein lies a major feature of his symphonies, because not only is there a need, as with all composers, to have logical connections between the movements, but with Mahler there also seems to be a need to have a logical sequence from one symphony to the next. How to follow up the blackness and despair of the ending of the sixth with a work that would contain two night pieces? According to Mahler's own recollection, the impasse was broken when he was rowing a small boat in the lake near his composing hut in the summer of 1905. The musical ideas for the first movement came to him, inspired in part by the sound of the oars in the water. The first, third and fifth movements were completed within four weeks, with the two night movements being the second and fourth, and the orchestration of the Seventh Symphony was finished sometime later. The central movement of the five is a scherzo, and the conductor Michael Geelan has suggested that it's the kernel of the work, and that an understanding of the seventh should start here and work outwards. Mahler himself gives the key to the focus of the third movement, with the performance indication schattenhaft. This means shadowy, and the music does indeed suggest ghostly apparitions, fleeting images, and, in its own way, another vision of night. Some have even suggested it's a sort of dance of death. The seventh concludes with a massively positive finale, which makes us nearly forget all that's gone before. It's actually shocking in the literal sense, given all we know and expect of Mahler, to have a symphony end so unabashedly up. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As this one does. Mahler broke out of the heroic trilogy of the 5th, 6th and 7th symphonies with the gigantic 8th, composed in 1906 and 1907, and completed shortly before he left Vienna to start work in New York. His complex personal psychology has fascinated writers for a century, and this psychology is reflected in his music. But in purely musical terms, the Eighth Symphony marks something of a shift in his compositional style. In 1906, Mahler, as usual, set aside his summer break to compose, and planned to revise the Seventh Symphony while waiting for ideas to come to him as to what his next work might be. When the ideas came, they hit him like a torrent, and the Eighth Symphony, one of the most massive scores ever conceived, was written in a mere six weeks. The Eighth Symphony is famous mainly because of the huge forces Mahler requires in the work. He'd used large orchestras in his early symphonies, but the Eighth is something else. The orchestra of well over a hundred players is joined by three choirs and many vocal soloists. Mahler himself conducted the hugely successful first performance, which took place in Munich in 1910. To help ensure an audience, the promoter of the concert advertised the work as the Symphony of a Thousand, an unfortunate and usually inaccurate nickname which was merely a marketing ploy and which never had the composer's approval. That said, performances of this work with upwards of 500 participants are not unusual. But as is often the case with works of this nature, the sheer size of the performing forces can distract us from the many quiet, gentle and subtle passages it contains. What is also unusual about Mahler's Eighth, and something often overlooked, is the fact that it's almost unrelentingly positive in its message. Those who look here for signs of Mahler's trademark depressive nature or intimations of death will be disappointed. 
The Eighth Symphony is about the redemptive power of love, something expressed in the two very different texts he chose to set to music. He decided early on in the composition process to cast the work in two parts, the second much longer than the first. For part one, the words are the ninth-century Latin hymn to the Holy Spirit, Veni Creator Spiritus. This focuses on the love of God as inspired by the Holy Spirit. In part two, the text is in German, setting a slightly abridged version of the final scene of part two of Goethe's Faust. In Mahler's hands, the outcome is the same. Love can redeem. The thrust of Faust at the end of part two is the salvation of Faust's soul, and the symphony ends in a hymn of praise to the redemptive power of love. After writing the eighth in 1906, Mahler had to face the fact that his next symphony would be his ninth. The so-called curse of the ninth is a silly myth, really, and the idea that composers are terrified of writing their ninth symphonies lest they die is vastly overstated. It does seem, though, that Mahler was conscious of the significance of writing a ninth symphony. But the real world intervened after he composed the eighth in that burst of energy in 1906. By mid-1907, he'd been forced out of his post as director of the Vienna Court Opera by intrigues, rivalries and anti-Semitism. Then, three days after arriving in the Alps for his customary summer vacation, his elder daughter contracted scarlet fever and diphtheria. After two horrendous weeks, she died, leaving her parents shattered. And then came the third blow. Mahler was found to have an incurable defect with a valve in his heart. This focused his mind on his mortality as never before, and he mused on fate and the fickleness of life. These three dreadful experiences conspired to make it impossible for Mahler to compose at all in the summer of 1907. New work soon distracted him as he enthusiastically took up the post of director of the Metropolitan Opera in New York the following winter. But on returning to Europe for his summer break in 1908, he soon succumbed to melancholy. At this time, Mahler was given a copy of a book of poems called The Chinese Flute. These claimed to be translations of ancient Chinese poetry by Hans Bethke. But research has shown that Bethke, who was himself a poet but spoke no Chinese, drew much of his work from other sources while adding material of his own. The effect on Mahler, though, was cathartic, as he found the world-weary, fragile, introspective emotions of these poems a mirror for his own. Mahler drew on seven poems from the Chinese flute to set as six movements in a work which summarises the two great preoccupations of Mahler's composing life, symphony and song. And despite calling the work a symphony, he didn't give it a number, so it's not officially his ninth. He called it Das Lied von der Erde, The Song of the Earth, and subtitled it A Symphony for Tenor, Contralto or Baritone, and Orchestra. The entire work was completed in short score in only two months in the summer of 1908 and orchestrated the following winter.
Mahler never heard Dustlied von der Erde performed. Likewise, the official Ninth Symphony, which he wrote in 1908 and 1909, wasn't premiered until June 1912, 13 months after his death. The Ninth is a fitting end to a unique creative career. It's sad, but it lets go of life with the greatest reluctance, acknowledging beauty and life and agreeing to have no further part in either. Yet despite all the overtones of farewell, Mahler went on to draft a tenth symphony to the point of sketching the entire work and substantially completing two of its five movements. The ninth symphony is a purely orchestral work cast in four movements. The structure is unusual in that the first and last movements are very long and generally slow, while the middle two movements are more lively. And even though we know he went on to start the 10th symphony, the end of the 9th is desperately, beautifully moving. The music moves beyond the realm of words and beyond the reach of life. The ten completed symphonies of Gustav Mahler, the nine numbered symphonies and the Song of the Earth, are a monumental and unique corner of the repertoire. Each of these creations requires work on the part of the listener, to think, to feel, to endure even, but each one repays such effort gloriously. A number of conductors have made Mahler a special part of their lives, and the recordings of the symphonies used in this program were led by one of the greatest, the Dutch conductor Bernard Heitink. Holland has a deep and lasting connection with the music of Mahler, and Heitink's association with the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam, one of the world's great orchestras, dates back to 1956. He was their chief conductor from 1961 to 1988, and despite recent disagreements with the orchestra's management, returned to work with them in the 2016-17 season. 2019 marks Bernard Heiting's 90th birthday, and all these recordings were made with the Concertgebouw at the height of their time together. My thanks to Tom Ford for this program's technical production. I'm Graham Abbott. Catch you next time.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 